Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a roadmap for the new deputy federal CIO, building a modernization success story with the TMF and the people problem in the government's cyber world. It's Wednesday, October 26, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Lidos. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Drew Micklegard's officially the Deputy Chief Information Officer of the United States. Federal CIO Claire Martirana named him to the post permanently yesterday. Micklegard's been the acting Deputy CIO since Maria Rote retired. He's former Executive Director of Product Engineering at the Department of Veterans Affairs and an Army veteran. Former Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter has died. Carter started or restarted a number of technology initiatives in his tenure as Undersecretary of Acquisition, Technology and Logistics, Deputy Secretary of Defense, and the 25th SecDef. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Drew Micklegard's new job as permanent deputy chief information officer of the United States includes implementation of Claire Martirana's agenda as federal CIO. Those tasks include the federal data strategy and the technology modernization fund. Suzette Kent is CEO of Kent Advisory Services. She's former federal chief information officer. Suzette, in a moment, I want to ask you the importance of the capacity of the deputy to you as the federal CIO. But I note those two items that I that I chose in particular that Drew will be implementing, executing on for Claire are things, one that came from your administration and one that came from the administration before you. What does that say to you about kind of the continuity of what we're seeing in the government's efforts to refresh, reinvent its IT structure? Welcome. Hey, thank you, sir. I'm gl- glad to be here. And it, it it excites me because it shows that the you know IT community stays focused on continually raising the bar. And there are multiple examples, whether it's the TMF, like you said, is past multiple administrations, the federal data strategy, where we've gone with cybersecurity, the the um digital efforts, you know, first it started with getting rid of paper, then it started with um common systems. Now it's looking at cross-agency processes and many of the workforce efforts. Uh, you know, you you and I spent time at ELC and I was glad to, to hear um, Director Hoosia talk about some of the workforce efforts continuing those. So, you know, I, I'm excited for Drew, but it, it's more important for the American people and the technology community as a whole is that there's continuity and that we do continue to raise the bar because most of the things that we have to do to truly be transformational don't happen in a single administration. They take, you know, they're they're long, they're a long game. And um, I, I think that's something really special about this community. The fact that those uh, initiatives take a long time, is that a feature or a bug, Suzette? Uh, wow, that's a great question, Francis. Um, I think the I, I think we could improve how fast they go. Um, there is, you know, I, I know Claire spent some time talking about bureaucracy. You know, there are some things that take way too long, and if you compare those to private sector, government takes longer. But particularly things where you have to change culture, 
And now that technology is so pervasive, it's not just an IT function, it is procurement, it's HR, it is how the business, you know, uh, uh, how the mission space gets their work done. Those are bigger efforts. So, so sometimes they need to take longer for the right level of acceptance, as well as managing risk, you know, in government functions. So um, could be better. That's the bug processes, but uh, uh, changing culture and transformation sometimes needs a little time. What did you do in the last year or so of your tenure, knowing that the end was coming for the administration and for your time in office, uh, potentially, to be ready to kind of pass the baton? Well, Look at some of the things that we did with policy and with, you know, you started with federal data strategy. The federal data strategy was a 10-year initiative with a commitment to have an action plan every year. And they're continuing that. So that created a long-term vision, but accountability every single year and a mechanism so that there can be some flexibility across different administrations, different, you know, priorities there's examples, you know, of um, other things that we did with updating some of the policies where we put timers in there that that policy had to be reevaluated in a certain number of years. The 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 you know start of ELC was um, or the discussion that I had there was about the fact that it was the 20th year of the eGov Act, and I read the first two statements that was in the eGov Act of 2002, and the goals are actually still the same. Use technology more efficiently to better serve American people. It had some technologies listed that are not, you know, not current, um, but the goal is still the same. And, and I think that's important um, for all of the, you know, technology leaders. And it's really an, a very important consideration as we write policy to ensure that it is enduring and it, it is it provides um, North Star guidance and direction, but it's flexible enough uh, to keep up with the pace of innovation. That Sunday night uh, opening to ELC that you just referenced was one of my favorite ELC events in all the years I've been going, and I've been to a few. So let me set the stage for people who weren't there or, or weren't able to see it. By the way, we're going to play that on the Friday edition of the Daily Scoop podcast. That's going to be the entire show because it was really cool. It was you, it was Essie Miller, Renee Wynn, Maria Rote, and Margie Graves. And Karen Evans was supposed to be there, and she couldn't be because she uh, came down with COVID, and we missed her terribly. Um, we'll look to follow up with her on the program sometime in the next couple of weeks. But the, I happened to be sitting next to Dan Chenick, and who, who wrote that. Right. And... and he was he kind of leaned over to me as you were reading that intro and he goes, We called that the preamble. <laughs> like the constitution. And I thought, okay, Dan, that's that, that's pretty it's pretty grand thinking, but go for it. But I thought the same thing as you were reading it. What he wrote 20 years ago mm -hmm. still applies to the work that your office, your former office is doing, Claire and her team that the individual CIOs across government and the other technology people are doing, it still applies 20 years later, it holds up. It it certainly does. I, I saw Dan afterwards and I told him, so that was the part Karen was actually going to cover. 
And I told him, I said, if I'd have seen you in the audience, I'd ask you to come read it. Yeah. But um, I I specifically read the exact words because it was a great example of, of things that have held up. And Claire and I had a great conversation about the place some of the workforce efforts, you know, are going. And that just, it, it takes focus and tenacity and you have to keep, you have to you have to keep it moving, you know, each time. And that's the way that we make lasting and enduring change. So two of those women that were on that stage did the job for you that Drew will now do for Claire as the deputy chief information officer. What makes a good deputy CIO of the United States, Suzette? <laughs> okay, Francis, that could take the whole rest of the show. Well, but- <laughs> I got time. I got nothing but time for you, my friend. <laughs> Well, first of all, you know, Margie and Maria are, are phenomenal leaders, you know, period. So everything that that you do, you know, in the office has multiple, I'll say, um, constituents. You know, we, we have conversations with all the CIOs and the CIO council, with Congress, with the administration, with the mission owners of agencies. Um, and with the team itself, you know, the the, the OFCIO team, which is a, an incredible, you know, talented group of people. And back to what what we started with, the, the goal of creating policy at, for use of technology has to set the right direction, but have the right level of flexibility. And um, that takes a lot of dialogue, and a lot of discussion. And the deputy is very important in that discussion with the agencies, with the budget team, you know, understanding what the priorities are and what does it mean to fund? You know, I remember one of my, you know, a lot of uh, one of my conversations was around some of our objectives on AI and the budget team kind of said, what does it mean to fund AI, right? And that that is, that is indeed a, a, a comp, what does it mean to fund cybersecurity? And many of those conversations um, have to happen with the deputy, and particularly um, as a a uh, for me, for someone who had not had a long history in government, Margie and Maria were critical to advising me and helping make sure that all of the processes, all of the procedures, all of the things that had to be done, whether it's posting on the federal register, number of days for comment, that we did those things. They were also great advisors um, when I pushed the question the other way, saying this doesn't make any sense. Do we have to do it this way? What are ways that we can do it differently? So, you know, the um, the the deputy is critical to getting the work done, and they have communication roles, they have leadership roles, they have you know, process um, roles, but but most of all, they have to bring their experience to the table every day and use that, you know, to to, to get the work done. So I I know uh, that that Drew is is looking forward to doing that. Suzette, it's great to see you as always. It was fun to spend time with you and Hershey, and thanks very much for coming on the show again. Always great to talk to you, Francis. Thank you, sir. You can read more about Drew's appointment in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
Three new awards from the Technology Modernization Fund will address legacy IT problems. The Army, the Office of Personnel Management, and Housing and Urban Development will get a total of about $36 million. Sandra Lopez is Chief Technology Officer for Lidos Enterprise and Cyber Solutions Operations. Lidos sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Sandra, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. That's problem of moving from legacy to modernized platforms has been challenging for agencies across government. How are you seeing agencies successfully make these kinds of moves? Welcome, Sandra. Oh, thank you, Francis. Uh, Let me start by framing uh, the discussion with speeds and feeds uh, metric. Lidos has completed about more than 1,000 public and private cloud migrations, helping government agencies across the spectrum, military and not, uh, to migrate workloads efficiently and securely. We have a subsidiary, 1901 Group, that specializes in cloud migrations, orchestrating with processes and tools that facilitate those efforts. Uh, you've identified a very uh, interesting conundrum that our customer face every day. Um, we have a tried and proven approach to address this challenge. Uh, our military US forces, for instance, face this very challenge every day as they modernize and converge command and control systems. And this is as part of the JADC2 efforts for multi-domain operations. Um, We have used this approach with the Army, in particular with the Advanced Field Artillery Tactical Data Systems, F-ATITS, and with the uh, JDOCs, the Joint Automated Deep Operations Coordination System. They are both software applications that are legacy. They had to be uh, moved to the cloud. And then they had to be continually uh, designed, redesigned, engineered, extended uh, through various integration efforts. Um, our unique um, uh, process and approach to it allows us to not only possibly lift and shift those applications, we could refactor them, we could simply wrap them with microservices. All of them are valid approaches to enabling those legacy systems to be integrated into newer cloud native systems. When you do those transformations, how do you decide which of those paths that you just outlined is the right one? Because I'm not sure you could ever catch an agency CIO saying, yeah, we're just going to lift and shift this application from uh, a data center setup to a cloud setup. Nobody wants to admit to that, but it sounds like there are times where that makes the most sense, where that's the best move for the for the agency. You're absolutely correct. Uh, Sometimes uh, the factors that surround the application determine the path you take. The age of uh, the application, meaning how long it's been in service, the coding uh, and architecture structures that were used when it was first developed, the the sustainment tail end that has gone into it, and particularly the operations maintenance uh, tail end as well. All those factor into um, how uh, worthy an application is to be uh, to be lifted and shifted and extended through microservices or how well it fits into a refactoring and that's the only way to go forward. We do an assessment when we are, are tasked with a particular activity like this and that assessment enlightens us uh, on the parameters that uh, surround the application or the effort and uh, we weight uh, those uh, uh those assessments results, and we submit to the customer uh, possible courses of action. 
and we jointly uh, make that decision with the customer. Are there common themes or common components of these transitions, regardless of whether it's a lift and shift or, or, or a complete rethinking of the application, or maybe even a redesign of the application for a new business process or whatever? Are there commonalities among the successful ones that you've seen, Sandra? Yeah, so we've seen um, most of uh, the applications that are Newer in time, something after the uh, probably 1995 timelines are probably the most uh, amenable to lift and shift um, or refactoring. Uh, but the ones that are older than that are possibly lift and shift with uh, extensions uh, with microservices. Um, one of the things that agencies are trying to move to is broadening things across their entire enterprises using um, enterprise IT as a service. What are you seeing uh, as far as how agencies are doing that, how they're attacking that problem uh, at the beginning, and how they're realizing success with that, Sandra? Well, thank you for that question. That's uh, that's a 50,000 uh, penny question. Um, so we see a, uh, a trend in the market to go to uh, outcome-based uh, um, delivery, which would be equivalent to an enterprise as a service kind of consumption model. Um, we see that being prevailing in the more aggressive ones that don't have many security concerns with um, with uh, uh, partners and military uh, type of uh, 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 classification levels. Uh, with respect to um, applications where we need to transition a customer uh, to that, we see a journey, um, a journey of maturation and a journey of conversion. Um, uh, it's very hard to consume these services and go from one mode of operation to another. It requires a cultural change, a cultural change in the contracting as well as in the consumption side. And it requires partners, meaning industry being a partner with the customer as they take on this journey for maturing into an enterprise as a service delivery model. Um, it is viable, it is feasible, but uh, overall you need a commitment um, to actually try and um, and uh, change, and that is hard to uh, to inject in well-established enterprises. You mentioned JADC two earlier, Sandra, and I'm fascinated by that project mainly because of what it requires from the department. It requires all of the services pulling in the same direction, basically at the same time and at the same speed. What's your involvement with that? What what is your level of of uh, integration there? And what do you see coming out of JADC2? What kind of progress do you see happening as the services try to, to make this work? Yes, JADC2, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's somewhere in the vicinity of maybe uh, five to seven years uh, vision. Uh, every step that the U.S. service branches take now with respect to modernizing their enterprises and um, uh, re-engineering themselves has to account for that uh, ultimate outcome, which is to be able to operate in an all-domain command and control uh, environment. Uh, our initiatives are broad. We are actually working with all of the branches, all of the service branches, the Air Force, the Army, and the Navy on their respective initiatives. The Air Force uses uh, the Advanced Battle Management System as the framework Towards JADC2, the Army's Project Convergence, and the Navy's Project Overmatch. Um, LIDOS uh, was recently awarded a spot uh, on the Air Force's uh, Advanced Battle Management System, 
digital infrastructure and consortium in um, Lighthouse is one of five awardees. And as a member of that consortium, we are collaborating with those industry partners um, in, in the design, development, and deployment of those modern uh, JATC2 capabilities that all of the uh, U.S. service branches need in order to uh, to actually collaborate and uh, coexist and integrate in, in that um, environment. Um, we, we know that uh, every major vendor, every major integrator in, uh, in defense is currently working on uh, opportunities for uh, moving forward their position for uh, joining JATC2 or helping the, the services join JATC2. Uh, Lighters is uniquely positioned. Our experiences, our partnerships in commercial industry, our technological proudness with our R&D and position us perfectly for bringing our decades of uh, systems integration and digital modernization expertise to bear uh, in order to make this a reality for our military partners. What's the role that a vendor partner can play in something like JADC2? There's a big concern when these programs started that, okay, the Air Force is going to be over here doing ABMS, and the Army's going to be here doing convergence, and the Navy's going to be over here doing overmatch, and never the twain shall meet. And it strikes me that it's not just Lidos, but you're, you're one of those partners, as you just laid it out there. And it strikes me that there's a, a unique role that you can play for helping each of the other services understand what the other services are doing. I know their offices are talking to each other. It's not the same as being in there actually doing it together every day. And it, it seems to me there's a unique role that you can play there. Am I reading that right, Sandra? You're absolutely correct, Francis. Um, there's a element of trust that as a partner of the various service branches, that you've worked with them to get where they're at now, and that you are a perfect partner that you can work with to actually move them forward. There's a lot of uh, engineering that has to happen. There's a lot of discussion that has to happen, a lot of standardization that has to happen. And also the, the large uh, uh, SIs and partners that have been there with them uh, over the years, are best positioned to help them get to the next level. We definitely have to partner with our customer. We have to be a facilitator for their wants and desires and be the innovators that bring to bear that technology that is going to make it all happen. So we need to work hand in hand with them. I want to go back to the beginning of our conversation, Sandra. We were talking more broadly about IT transformation, modernization at the beginning of the conversation. What's over the horizon? What should a federal leader, whether it's civilian or military, be thinking about as far as showing up on her radar screen a year from now or two years from now or whatever, or somebody that might be focused on the tactical stuff that she has to think about today? What strategically do you recommend people pay attention to? Oh, so there's, um, I call it my trifecta. Um, there's uh, the enterprise itself. Uh, they should move to a software-defined enterprise where you can automate and you can orchestrate uh, the components of that enterprise. So to, if at all possible, choose options uh, and vendors and products that are software-defined. They are easier to automate and orchestrate. Secondly, um, uh, data-driven operations, uh, reducing those silos, data silos. Make sure that you establish the capability to collect data that helps you uh, make decisions in a real-time basis and that um, provides that if mined properly, 
and analyzed properly can give them actionable insights into where they uh, need to uh, work or um, address. And then there's, of course, the decision support. AIML um, and has become the general uh, facilitator for um, assisting our uh, our decision makers and supporting them as they start taking real-time events and real-time um, uh, data and making decisions based on that. So, uh, so that's, those three are technology-driven. There's a fourth one, and that has to do with workforce transformation. Um, they need to probably look into how to get that workforce to be savvy about uh, the new way of operating, uh, particularly DevSecOps, uh, site reliability engineering principles should be used in that workforce transformation plan. No agency and no market should ever go at it um, without having a workforce transformation effort. All right, you snuck an extra one into the trifecta, so I guess I'll box those the next time I go to the track, Sandra. Thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the program. My pleasure, Francis. Thank you. You can read more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Zero Trust Initiative the federal government's undertaking includes securing the insider threat at agencies. The biggest element of that threat, according to Andre Mendez, the chief information officer at the Commerce Department, is phishing. At Cyber Talks, he tells moderator Bruce Brody, cyber reality isn't what people think it is. Most people envision... Uh, you know, something from the movies where there's somebody out there uh, with incredibly complex uh, and, uh, and remarkable skills that breaks into a system uh, through, you know, very, very obscure vulnerabilities. But the reality is that 95% of the breaches are reached via phishing emails. And, and another 5% uh, of the rest are reached because of poor maintenance. And so having a workforce that is totally and completely illiterate in terms of, uh, of the cybersecurity risks of the present environment has never been more important. And it requires total and complete dedication uh, to keep them informed, um, not only of the underlying risks as they exist, but the, the continuous improvement uh, in the appearance of those risks. I am positive that every single one of you, both on your business email and personal email, has received literally hundreds of phishing emails over the last month. Uh, and if you will notice, you know, they are increasingly more sophisticated in terms of their appearance, in terms of their message, and in terms of the urgency that they elicit on the recipient so that they can do that crucial no-no of clicking on a link that gets everything started. And so how do you deal with that? I mean, in the, in the private sector, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in, in your private life, that is difficult enough uh, because there is not an organized effort in order to continually educate you on that. You have to rely on your vendor uh, of your email service uh, to have a good filter in order to bring that to, you know, to fruition. But that's not always the case. Now, in the, in the government environment, we, we have the opportunity to deploy systems uh, that quarantine that type of environment. Um, and also, we have the opportunity to educate our workforce. So at the Department of Commerce, we have a fairly extensive program uh, that tests our employees with very, very sophisticated emails that are fake phishing emails and that get deployed on, on a quarterly basis at least, and sometimes more often, not on a schedule. And I will tell you that even after 
all of the trainings that we've gone through, after, uh, after, after all of the warnings that we put uh, people through, uh, we still find a remarkable amount of people that are clicking on our fake emails. And I will tell you that they are not as sophisticated as some of the ones we get from, from the bad actors. So this is both a constant challenge in terms of preventing it through automated methods, uh, but also a constant challenge in terms of education of our workforce uh, so that they become inured to, to the way that these things are done. They become inoculated uh, and they develop the antibodies, to use a recent vernacular, uh, to, to this type of infections. Uh, and, and it's a constant struggle. So if your, program, if your uh, agency or department or bureau does not have a very, very strong uh, program in terms of this type of education, I would strongly encourage you to pursue it at the earliest possible opportunity and with the greatest degree of robustness. Can I, can I ask, you, you, uh, your workforce kind of turns over. Every, you know, you, people come in every day, people retire or leave. How do, you re, how do you refresh the training? How do you keep the, the awareness uh, current and hot? So two elements on that. One, for everybody that comes on board, they go through an extensive training, not only in terms of our systems and how to utilize them and all of the ethics associated with that, of course, uh, but also on the, on the fishing element, uh, because we do not know their level of knowledge when they come on board, and we certainly cannot afford until the next training or the next uh, fishing exercise uh, to edu educate them. So it is part of our onboarding training that, that that takes place, and that's very important. Another thing that I would mention is, you know, uh, much like everything else that we have to implement in the federal government, this is something that, as far as I'm concerned, is better done through an outsourcing effort. There are companies out there uh, that provide this type of service. I'm not endorsing any of them, but they are providing this type of service, uh, and you're much better off contracting with them and letting them go through the program because their ability to generate these incredibly sophisticated programs uh, of, of fake fishing and, and fishing exercises and training is probably far better than what you can develop on your own uh, you know, and it avoids the repetition of having those efforts throughout the entire federal government hundreds of times. Uh, and so I would highly recommend that you look at the service providers out there and, and you pick, uh, you know, the one you think is best and provides you the best value. Um, but, but it is absolutely essential that a program like that be implemented. So that cybersecurity is, is, is really a function of your weakest link. And if your weakest link is your employee, especially the one that's not necessarily uh, risk conscious and security aware, that creates significant problems for your overall cybersecurity posture. Yeah, but, but, but that has always been the case. Again, if you look at all of the reasons why we have had major breaches over the last uh, 20 years or, or major impairments to operation, they fall under four different categories. One is the, the phishing incident. The second one is sloppy maintenance of the uh, patching uh, and remediation of known vulnerabilities. Uh, the third one, very important one, is the insider threat, okay, which is one of the main reasons why zero trust architecture is so important because not only does it protect you against the elements on the outside, but it offers you hopefully a great degree of protection against individuals on the inside that will now have their avenues for exploring uh, opportunities for, uh, for wreaking havoc uh, severely curtailed by the, the ICAM systems, access controls, access control systems and identity management so that we, you know, if they're inside, you, you limit the, their lateral uh, movement 
uh, and therefore can limit the damage and keep it con con uh, constrained to the environment to which that individual has, has the opportunity. The last one, of course, is the denial of service, distributed denial of service, right? And of course, there's all kinds of mitigation strategies out there in terms of outsourcing, you know, DNS type escalation where you can access uh, resources up to literally billions of interactions a second and that left to your own devices in your own architecture if you don't have, uh, uh, if you don't have that type of capability, uh, you're going to find yourself in a very, very uh, precarious position regardless of the power of the equipment that you've deployed on the outside of your network because, you know, you, when you get billions of uh, fake packets coming at you at once, you need the service of, of somebody that has the capability to handle that divert it, and allow you to continue your operation. I, I'm assuming now, I mean, Commerce is a cabinet-level department, like other cabinet-level departments, you have a large contractor workforce. To what extent do your, your comments apply to the contractor workforce? Oh, by lock, stock, and barrel. Lock, stock, and barrel. I make no differentiation between uh, an FTE and a contractor when it comes to cybersecurity. Your weakest link is your weakest link. And if you just hire that weakest link from one of your contracting companies, uh, your exposure is the same uh, because that individual might have access to certain systems um, that, uh, that, you have, uh, that, that you have now lost your, your control of. If I'm not mistaken, and please correct me, anybody, but I believe that Mr. Snowden was a contractor um, in, in the place where, uh, let's say, that he created some degree of havoc. <laughs> uh, to put it lightly, uh, there's, a, there's this treadmill that goes on. You bring people in, you make them security aware, risk conscious, you grant them clearances, you develop them with training, and then all of a sudden, out they go into private industry. Is there any retention and in, in other considerations? Well, you know, a friend of mine once joked, you know, because uh, his CEO came to him and said, this was in the private sector, and said, we know, we hire these people, we train them, you know, they're excellent, become excellent uh, resources, and then they go somewhere else. To which my friend said, what if we didn't do it? Then we would have resources that are not trained, and they can provide them with the value that we have. So it's an equation that you have to nurture. Uh, you, you cannot retain employees by virtue of them not being employable elsewhere. Right? Because then you're just left with the laggards, right? <laughs> so, you know, hopefully you have a program that is so remarkable that people grow through your program and can go somewhere else and, and apply their skills, and your pipeline continues to provide you with the type of quality that is necessary. Now, <clears throat> that requires long-term planning in terms of how you develop your workforce, right? I will tell you that in the cybersecurity environment right now, in the federal sector, this is what's happening. Agencies are stealing GS-14s, GS-15s, and SESs from each other. Constantly, right? Constantly. Well, there's a limited pool of people that are going to be able to do the work at the level that you want them. We need to develop a strategy for hiring people right out of college, right out of technical school, GS7s, GS8s, GS9s, educate them and inculcate them into the culture of cybersecurity that we're bringing to the table so that they become that internal pipeline that continues to drive, uh, you know, a better and better employees through the ranks uh, as your cybersecurity needs evolve. Because otherwise, you're always going to be in the chase. And you know how long it takes to hire somebody, right? So every time you lose somebody, you might be three months in the hunt for somebody else, and then they have to be brought up to speed. Let's in invest in some folks that can learn with us, that you can inculcate with the best practices from the get-go, 
And I think that they will serve us very well. The CIO at the Commerce Department, Andre Mendez, at CyberTalks with moderator Bruce Brody. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow. Till then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.